Welcome back to Supremus. Um, I am excited to learn a lot today from my guest, attorney Brett Chapman, who is a civil rights lawyer, a criminal defense lawyer. Uh, he specializes in Native American law. He's a former district attorney. He's a graduate of the University of Tulsa Law School. And given the Supreme Court's big case last week involving um, Native American children, um, I thought I'd have him on. Brett, it's great to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, I've heard, I, I'm really excited to talk to you. Let, let's begin with this. Um, you, you have such an interesting background. As I understand it, your great, 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 great grandfather was the first Native American to attend a presidential inauguration, and that would be Abraham Lincoln's. Is that correct? Yeah. So I think that was my fourth great. Yes. And so, <laughs> um, so it's this whole story here. Uh, basically, what happened is I'm Ponca. Um, I also have Pawnee and Kiowa heritage, but the Poncas, they're originally from their ancestral homeland is essentially the border of what is now South Dakota and Nebraska. Mm -hmm. And so in the mid 1850s, like when, you know, the sectional issue of slavery was heating up in the United States amongst the, you know, the two factions, essentially, um, you know, both of them, you know, saw the territories such as they were the Western territories as sort of, you know, theirs by right. And so what the presidents and stuff started doing um, at that time, after they created what was called the Kansas and Nebraska Territory under an act by the same name in 1854, they send out um, treaty, I guess, negotiators is the best way to put it, um, to start negotiating treaties for land sessions with all these indigenous nations um, on the upper Missouri River, uh, the northern Great Plains. And so what ultimately happened was in 1857, it was like the Ponca Nation's turn, right? They had no treaty with the United States. They held you know, a decent amount of, of lands uh, pursuant to their you know, indigenous land claim. And so they um, go up there in 1857, they sign a treaty, um, ceding is a good amount of it and uh, reserving a small portion for themselves. Um, so, wait, I'm sorry, then, I'm sorry, Brett, back up one second. So the, 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 the tribe said to the, I mean, I assume under duress, this is all under duress. I, I don't know if I'm asking, this is under duress, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So my, as I mentioned, my fourth great grandfather, his name was Iron Whip. He was the principal um, chief of the Ponca Nation at the time. And so, yeah, essentially these were under duress. Um, and so, you know, even though though at the same time, they were very smart people, um, you know, even though they didn't speak English or anything, you know, he studied the treaties that were negotiated with neighboring nations like the Pawnee, the Sioux, all of that stuff. Yeah. Um, and so they had some, some morsel of negotiating power, but when they went up there, they negotiated a session treaty. Um, in any event, it didn't work out too well for them. Um, and so by 1865, at the end of the U.S. Civil War, um, essentially during that, the U.S., the government was not prioritizing, you know, honoring these treaties because to them, they had more important things to deal with. Um, and so if you were one of my ancestors, they were left to starve. Um, and so what happened was, is that in 1865, at the end of that war, they went to Washington to uh, negotiate another one. And so he was there around that time um, negotiating this treaty they ultimately broke. But, you know, he went to this um, inauguration that was supposedly this great thing by this supposedly great president. Um, you know, I forget the exact words, but, um, you know, making these grandiose promises um, about, you know, equality, so on and so forth. Um, and so at the end of the day, you know, despite these promises, what he got was he got killed on a forced removal, um, you know, 10 years after that. And right. so, right. Um, 
and this story kind of segues into um, my third great grandfather. Um, he took over as like the principal chief of the of the Ponca Nation, you know, in 1877 or so. His vice chief um, was um, Standing Bear. This this man named Standing Bear, who was also in his family, um, they shared a grandfather together. Um, and so, what ultimately happened is, is the U.S. government um, after the um, Custer, General Custer, um, you know, had the Battle of Little Bighorn happen to him. Um, obviously, this made the U.S. mad, and so their particular um, resolution to that problem was to move the Lakotas uh, closer to the Missouri River so they could be watched, um, and then that necessitated forcibly removing the Poncas to the Indian Territory, which is now um, where I am. But um, so what happens is a government agent for Ulysses S. Grant shows up and has just tells the Poncas, tells my ancestor, White Eagle, who was the principal chief, he's like, hey, you got to go. And so, um, you know, White Eagle's not a fan of this. You know, he holds this treaty up. He's like, hey, this is, uh, I've got this paper right here that says, right. no, I've got these right. lights. Um, and so they make him go anyways. Um, and ultimately it kills off uh, a third of them. Jeez. And so the vice chief standing bear kills off all of his kids. Um, and so after it kills off the last one, he's just basically like, okay, I'm leaving. And so at the time under the, what was the first codification of the, federal code, it was known as like the revised statutes of the United States of 1874, essentially a precursor to the U.S. code as we know it today. Um, there was a crime in there uh, for any uh, Indian to go off a reservation, so to speak. So he, under the laws of the time, had technically committed a crime, right? And so- Hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on. Sorry to ask this question. This is obviously um, incredibly, well, bigoted and prejudicial. Is that where off the, res the phrase off the reservation comes from? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think so. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. Um, and so, know. you know, for, he went off, quote, so to speak, quote unquote, off the reservation, as they say. Um, and so the president at the time was uh, Rutherford B. Hayes. Um, and so he ordered the commanding general of the army, um, I believe it was William Tecumseh Sherman at the time, um, to apprehend Standing Bear and remove him back to the Indian Territory. And so as it turns out, um, they did apprehend him um, near Omaha. And instead of going back, um, Standing Bear went into the federal district court there for Nebraska and Omaha with a petition for writ of habeas corpus in his hand. Um, and prior to that, no Native American had any standing um, before law, before United States law, that is, um, had no standing, um, anything like that. And so what Standing Bear challenged was, was the legality of the United States government to hold him on this charge, essentially, of, you know, leaving the reservation, going to another, whatever. Um, and so he challenged that and, you know, by some miracle was able to win. Um, and so he won and they, the court in that case found that, you know, Native Americans were technically persons, such as it's defined under law, yeah. um, you know, in the same sense that we hear corporations are persons. Um, <laughs> but uh, right. uh, yeah, so that was uh, the first time that it ever happened for Native Americans. And so um, that's quite a background. You know, really yeah, it's pretty neat to be involved with that. Um, you know, that guy is a member of the family. And so it's it's something that I've always known growing up and you know, it, it, it today it's starting to kind of get the um, attention that it deserves. Just like a couple of weeks ago, he was put on a, a United States postage stamp. So, um, you know, it's nice to see that because, again, when I was growing up, the only I heard about it in ninth grade Oklahoma history class. And that's just because my Oklahoma history teacher was uh, Shine Arapaho herself. So, and you, um, so you didn't grow up on a reservation. 
Uh, no, I didn't. Okay. No, my. So I grew up in Western Oklahoma. Yeah. yeah. So it was technically used to be the command or the China Rapo reservation, right. but no. So you just mentioned um, this postage stamp symbolic thing that just happened. Um, I want to ask you a couple questions. We'll, we'll get to the big case from last week in a minute, but before we get to that, to the ICWA case, um, I, I have a dumb question to begin with. Uh, a friend of mine, Mike Dorf, who I blog with, Mike was a Justice Kennedy law clerk. He wrote a blog post about that case. And um, the name of the law at issue was the Indian Child Welfare Act. And Mike kept using the word Indian in his blog post. In a parenthesis at the very beginning, he said he wasn't sure if that's the politically correct term. But since it's in the law, you know, he'll use it. Um, talk to me about that. Because is, is my kids, my, my, my teenagers would, would, would kill me if I used the word Indian to describe uh-huh. Native Americans. And I, I don't know what the right answer is here. I think most most native people that are, you know, in the know have no issue with it. I okay. mean, that's just what they're called in the law, right? right. And it's like uh, everyone knows uh, American Indians, Native American, indigenous people, whatever you want to call them, um, have this essentially a special relationship with the United States federal government. And so every Native American knows that. And so that's just what they, they call it, right? Okay. And so, um, you know, in the generation, you know, like the Indian Child Welfare Act came out in the late 1970s, you know, that generation is like my parents' generation, like my mom, right? And they're still around. And so, you know, I it, it is nice to see people kind of, I compare it to a little bit of like, you know, like Martin Luther King saying like Negro in his speeches, right? right? Right. That's like a word we don't use today, but back then, you know, that's just something. Sure. Obviously, he's saying it. Sure. Um, sure. Yeah, it's it's just a legal term. That I mean, sense. I think it's yeah. It depends on how really the person wants to use it. I've seen cases where you know you'll have a judge that's really biased against Native Americans, just spend a lot of time on his disclaimer on that, right. and it's just like it's pointless. You right. know. <laughs> okay. Um, second, much bigger, much more important question that um, but I didn't want to get that out of the way. Um, so you talk about this postage stamp. Um, and I will let me confess my ignorance out front on, on this podcast. I normally have con law professors on and I know a lot about con law. Um, I really don't know very much about Native American law or for that matter, what I know to be the pretty horrible plight of Native Americans in America today. Um, what are some of the most important problems that we need to solve? And, and what are some possible, maybe realistic ways of starting the process of getting to those problems? Sure. And so from my perspective, um, the way to look at it is, you know, the way the U.S. government works is that all of this has been whitewashed out. Right. Like, uh, you know, basically Native Americans were never intended to be here at this point. That's that's the God honest truth. That's how those people, the lawmakers back in like 1850, 1890, whatever. That's how they saw it. Um, They assumed that we were some type of problem that would be, you know, basically rectified by assimilation in a sense, into a larger society. And so I think what people need to remember about Native Americans is not so much, it's not a racial thing, is so much as it is, uh, you know, a sovereignty thing. And the sovereignty is, um, you know, Native nations have sovereign governments just the same as any other sovereign government, be it a national government, a state government, whatever. Um, And so these, what everything about being Native American ultimately comes back to in the end is not race, it's land and territory and natural resources. Because again, aside from in, aside from the original so-called 13 colonies right. um, through the Treaty, of pa- or the Treaty of Paris in 1790 or whatever, aside from that, where they get Great Britain's land claim or whatever, everything that they got west of the Appalachian Mountains after that, they negotiated, the US government negotiated on its own with Native American nations, 374 separate treaties, 
all thereafter, right? Um, wait, wait, can, so, I, can, I, can I stop you there? And again, I, I really, yeah. I'm sorry for my ignorance, but <laughs> just to make sure the audience and I are together on this. When you say everything west of there, uh, the, the, the U.S. government negotiated treaties with Native Americans, again, right. when you say negotiated, there wasn't much negotiation, right? I mean, there was tremendous no, 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 coercion. Was I mean, right. And so the treaties were largely one-sided, yes. obviously. Yes. And so um, in the sense of negotiating being... What I like to say is that these United States treaties were essentially, you know, um, carried out under false pretense, right? They're telling them, you know, if you sign here and give us this land, we're going to give you health care forever. We're going to give you X, Y, and Z, money, all that stuff. So they're fraudulent treaties executed under false pretense, right. um, all of them. Right. And so um, the U.S. government negotiates these with hundreds, hundreds of them with Native American nations all the way over to California um, you know, or the West Coast, like Oregon and so on. Um, and this is all occurring as the white people are moving further west. You know, it's the people that, I don't know how to best describe it, but, you know, as Trump said about Mexican people, they're not bringing their best, right? Well, right. That, the only way that was true was with white people coming, <laughs> moving west in right. the 1800s. They didn't bring their best, right? right? Those were the people that were just generally, they weren't the scholars. They were bottom bottom barrel type people they were right? people and looking so, for a new a new way to live right i mean they they, they weren't surviving right. well they where couldn't they were. make it where they came from yeah right that's the end of the, that's the, the at the end of the day they couldn't make it where they came from and right. so they go west and so they execute all these treaties and why do they do it for land for these people land and resources natural resources um and so all of these things all of these indigenous nations that the u.s government um negotiated or executed treaties with so to speak um, they're still here, you know, uh, the descendants of those people are still here. They're still today. They're federally recognized governments. And so you look at all this land. Well, what is land? You know, land is generational wealth. That's, you know, you know what I know it. They knew it back in the 1700s. Right. Um, because in my estimation, the United States, that's just the new aristocracy was land ownership. You know, when they became a sovereign nation themselves, uh, land ownership was an, it was an aristocracy an aristocratic class they created and it sure. was among white males. And so when you look at that from a Native American perspective, you see all of this territory that you were outright cheated of. And, and I mean, nobody, very few people doubt or question that Native Americans were in fact cheated. You know, even the most ardent conservative will probably concede that point, right. even if they don't want to do anything about it. But most people don't question that. But if we're talking about true justice, you have these lands that were ceded um, under false pretense, and we're still here. Um, and most most indigenous nations are not wealthy. Um, you know, all of the wealth that was associated with those lands has been funneled into, you know, basically the ruling class of the United States, maybe at the time, maybe still now, you know, the white male landowner. Um, all of the wealth was pumped into that. Um, and so when you look at justice for Native American, it all has to come back to land. Right. Um, because again, that's the great misdeed. That's the original misdeed, I think, right. of the U.S. government. And so how, you know, what people like to say is, well, well gosh, we're just going to give all the land back to the, to the Indians. They're going to kick all the white people out. And no one's saying that, right? right? There's numerous ways that you can do that. And one way I think is through, the, again, this McGirt case, right? Um, when they're talking this landmark McGirt case, when they're talking about the establishment and disestablishment of Indian reservations. Um, look, 
Congress could just as easily say, yeah, well, we disestablished all of these Indian reservations. And it clearly says it, you know, here in the you know statutes at large, it says, you know, disestablishment of whatever reservation. But we're going to say we're going to give them jurisdiction back over their former whatever claims they once had, you know, some type of jurisdiction, regulatory jurisdiction, stuff like that. So there's numerous ways that it could happen, even through like legal mechanism like jurisdiction. Um, that for uh, indigenous nations to be able to tax, to regulate, to enforce their own laws. And I think that that's how it, for one, it used to be. Um, so before any of these people engaged in a United States treaty, um, and maybe even some of them after the first ones, like for the treaties of what's called Treaty of Amity, um, where it's just like a friendship pact, you know, they're still enforcing their own laws, their own regulations. So this stuff is not foreign. Right foreign so, concepts. It's just a foreign concept of people's idea of nationalism today. Right. What, what do you say to, I mean, this question is going to be probably offensive, but I don't know how to, I don't know how to ask it in an, in an offensive way. Um, what do you say to people who say, you know, uh, what, what America for all of its evils and ills and, and slavery, segregation, redlining, treatment of Native Americans, treatment of frankly, Irish Catholics in the, you know, in the mid 19th century, treatment of Jews and the, 20th century, for all of America's evils, still assimilation seems to be the way most outsider groups have thrived. And it feels to me like that's not really an option for Native Americans, but I don't know enough to make that statement. Well, that, that's getting into the ICWA issue that we'll talk about, okay. right? And the whole thing is assimilation. And so there's different types, right? You know, that may be fine for somebody coming over here. You can dictate what makes someone quote unquote American or your melting pot or whatever for right. somebody coming from a different By the way, did I offend overseas. you with that question? I hope I didn't. No, 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 no. It totally makes sense. Okay. I mean, you know, because Native Americans, they're, you have all of these policies to force assimilation. Whereas when you're mentioning the Irish Catholics, you know, they're all living in New York City, like in 1840, in this huge, they're speaking their own, there's a million languages going on in New York, right? They're right. continuing to speak, you know, whatever that, I don't know what, they're speaking Irish or whatever, yeah. um, you know, and then whether they assimilate or not is kind of up to them, right. in a sense, even though they may prescribe how many can come over at one time. But for Native Americans, it's quite different, because this assimilation, the basis of it in law is that we were, in fact, inferior people, um, you know, that we were not advanced enough and that this was like a benevolent type, you know, the white man's burden, so to speak. Right. Um, forces assimilation. And again, as, as this ICWA issue we'll talk about, a, a lot of it was by targeting children, younger generations of children to right. pull them away um, from what they saw as like this negative influence of like, you know, to tribal bonds or whatever. Right. So, yeah, it, it, it may be that other groups thrive with it, but, you know, for Native Americans, that that has historically been the goal, you know, ever since being articulated, I believe, for the first time by Thomas Jefferson, like in 1802 or whatever. Um, you know, he had this idea that Native Americans and you know, as racist as that guy was, that like Native Americans, okay for them to, you know, have sexual intercourse and children with white people. So, I mean, it it's a weird race it, in America is. is very weird. Um, yeah, it's very weird, but like. It, it, that's what they ultimately saw the ending because the government hated, they historically hated honoring treaties, right, with indigenous nations because there's money, uh, resources and stuff that could be elsewhere. So they've, they've always had an eye on how to get rid of the tribes, essentially. Right, right. That makes sense. Okay, let's talk about two big cases. Um, 
um, I think the right order of this probably is talk about ICWA first. So what is ICWA? How important is that law to Native Americans? And what did the court do last week? Yeah, so again, this is going back off from what we just said. The Indian Child Welfare Act happened in the 1970s, um, the late 70s. Um, and what you're seeing is historically, it wasn't the first iteration of, you know, targeting Indian children, so to speak. Um, the U.S. policy back in the 1880s, it started right after when I mentioned my ancestor, Standing Bear, yep. when he won civil rights. Um, the U.S. government at the same time was coming up with this policy of boarding schools, right? Um, and so there was a large one like in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And essentially what they were doing was they were pulling young Indian youth from their tribes, uh, their nations, um, under the false pretense to the leaders, such as my great, great grandfather, that they're, okay, well, your son, we're going to take him over here to Carlisle Industrial School. And guess what? He's going to learn how to use, do speak English and write English. Right. And that's going to help you guys out. You know, that's the false pretense it was right. under. But um, what they really meant it for was to separate these children from their parents, right? And pull them away and essentially indoctrinate them against, uh, indoctrinate them with an idea of self-hate, right? That your parents are inferior, that their way of life is inferior, that right. our way of life is superior. Right. Um, and so this happened beginning in the 1870s and continuing well through the 1930s or through the 1920s, um, these boarding schools. Now, and I, so, I, I stop you for one second because I was in Western Canada last summer, and the whole time I was there, there was this huge, you know, horrific tale, stories, I mean, truth, about Native American children in Canada who were sent right. to schools, but then, I think, tortured and killed and buried. And, 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 and it's amazing to me how America, that, that doesn't make American news very often, but it's a huge deal in Canada. When you say sent to boarding schools, was it the same kind of thing that happened in Canada? It was. Jeez. It was. And so when I mentioned Standing Bear, um, again, he's the first Native American to win civil rights. Well, as this happened, Standing Bear's brother, his name was Big Snake. Um, he was murdered by the U.S. Army after he hears about his brother's liberation, essentially. And he was going to go back to Nebraska, too. Um, he was murdered. Big Elk or I'm sorry, Big Snake. Um, he had a son and he went by the white name of William Snake, um, the name they gave him at Carlisle. And he goes up there and he dies. Um, and so. You know, whether they're they're not murdered or whatever, but they're going up there to disease ridden conditions, essentially. Yes. Right. Like this kid died of tuberculosis or something that he caught up there. Yeah. And so, you know, that's very common. And he's buried up there today um, in that cemetery with the, you know, the wrong. I mean, date it sounds almost like genocide on a small scale. Yeah, yeah, it was very. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it was in a sense, um, you know, is that they're not they had very little regard for. um the lives of the students. And I mean, I, I mean, maybe part of me thinks that they even felt that way about their own, right? right. I mean, you know, in the Victorian area or Victorian area, they were really right. okay. kind of cruel people. Right. So going back um, to ICWA. So, okay. So, so go back to ICWA. Okay. So you have this, this whole policy from the 1880s to about 19, late 20s of, of pulling Indian kids from their tribes, sending them to a boarding school far away, breaking up the family. The whole goal of that is, is to destroy the tribes, right? Because again, the number one way you inherit, you hand down your cultures to your children. Um, and then in the 1950s or so, there was this uh, policy called termination, um, where the federal government would um, try to terminate tribes, so to speak. They would send um, 
They would send youth, like 20-year-olds, to different cities um, where they would work and, you know, learn some type of industry or something. And there were schools set up there in these cities. Um, and so you see a complete reversal of this, 1960s, you know, basically the 50s and 60s, everybody knows, um, you know, is the civil rights, the black right. civil rights movement. Right. Um, and so this didn't happen in a vacuum uh, thereafter, after, uh, you know, Congress does the Civil Rights Act of 1968, Voting Rights Act of 64, that stuff. Um, then the Native Americans are, you know, hey, hey, what a, wait a minute, what about know, here, here, we've got some issues too. And so you'll see in beginning and basically the early 70s, um, you start seeing a real pivot towards Native American civil rights in the, in the very, um, on the, I guess I would say the, the heels of that, I guess, or the coattails of that, of the civil rights movement. And so um, you see when Nixon is president, they pass uh, the Self-Determination Act, which before then, um, these tribes, you know, they were, whether they could have governments was highly regulated. Um, and then this, this act allowed them to, again, you know, exercise some self-determination of their own internal affairs. Right. And so do you see this Indian Child Welfare Act coming up on the heels of that? And so... All of this is a pro-sovereignty movement done by Congress, which, as they say, um, there's a, a key case in federal Indian law, the Crow Dog. Um, is this is, um, I'm sorry, a Kagama, I don't always say Crow Dog. But um, that basically Congress has, quote unquote, plenary powers over um, Native American affairs, yes. essentially. And by plenary, um, and just so for the non-lawyers listening, by plenary, that means complete and total. Complete and total power, yeah. Um, and so um, that's the backdrop of this. They passed this law, ICWA, and it's for the sole purpose, again, of stopping this. You know, they recognize that there exists a problem um, in which a Native American child, let's say myself, let's say, I mean, I was five years after ICWA was passed. That's when I was born. Let's say something happened. You know, that law is going to govern if I was put up for adoption or for whatever reason was taken away from the home or my my biological parents. And so that law governs. Um, and so what they do is they recognize Congress does is that the best interest of the child, such as it is in family law and juvenile stuff for a Native American, that's a little bit different, right? They recognize that a Native American child's bond with their tribe and their, you know, their cultural heritage and stuff like that can be, you know, tied in with that as opposed to someone who's a child that's not. And so basically, you know, it forces these state jurisdictions um, to recognize that in any type of proceeding. So, um, so this, just to be clear, the law required, the law said that Native American children should be placed with Native American families. Yeah, if, if possible, right. A preferential. Preferential, right. Um, right, right. So what, so, and, and, and last Friday or Thursday, last week, the Supreme Court upheld the law. Many people thought they would not. And, and in the lead up to the case, there was a lot of debate about whether this was a racial classification. An issue right. the court so, ducked, right? Right. So the yeah, exactly. So the equal protection deal, um, yeah. you know, they did duck that. I mean, it is what it is, but um, you know, it's nice that it was upheld. Um, and so they did while not discussing the merits of that challenge, which again, that was kind of the most worrisome part about it. How I mean, do you respond? So um I have a friend that I don't I never at George Mason Law School, I refuse to call it by the other name. Um, who's, who's a very thoughtful friend of mine, a, a libertarian, and and um, and a couple other people there um, used to make these arguments that just as a forget the constitutionality as a policy matter, 
Um, this is not as clear cut as it seems, according to them. This is not my argument. Because there are times when Native American children are placed with white families for a little while, maybe when from, from two to three or one to three or whatever, and then they're removed to Native American families uh, and maybe even different tribe, because any tribe can make a claim is my understanding. And they claim that can be very hard on those little kids. I'm just repeating arguments I've heard. How do you respond to that policy argument? Well, sure. Yeah, sure. I mean, we have this law in place, right, that says, you know, that this this child is, if it's a Native American child and you have a certain type of proceeding, be it voluntary or involuntary, you know, with regard to the placement. And so, you know, it, anyone can find on any law, really, some, you know, case like that, that's kind of one that pulls at the heartstrings where you want to say, well, in this particular one instance, you right. know, well, this is what this one instance where it didn't work for this one kid, or we right. think it didn't work for this one kid, the whole thing needs to be thrown out. Right. You know, you, you can find that for pretty much any law there is. And so what I would result, what I would retort with is that you have to go back to the intent behind this law, which is very clear intent um, in these proceedings. And so it's it's there to for the protection of Native American children. It's there for the protection of of cultural dissemination, essentially, because, again, if you're native, the only way after all of these decades and centuries of U.S. Indian policy, the only way we have left to transmit our culture is through children. Right. And so I think they were seeing back in the 70s that you know, you saw just a large, a ridiculous percentage of Indian children being, you know, adopted out relative to others. And so, you know, that's a, that's the problem that this law was intended to rectify. So, so, and I, so I think. I like that answer. I, I just want to say for the people who follow this podcast, um, I, I did some research into this case. And what I want to say is whatever the pros and cons of the policy arguments are and, and, and the good and bad of this law, it seems to me that it is Congress who should make this decision absent an obvious and clear constitutional mistake. And the policy issues are complicated enough where I'm really glad the court just, you know, this should be Congress's decision, right? I mean, it's, right, right. is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think, again, the, the long title of the act couldn't make it more explicit, right? right. You know, it's like, a, you know, an act to establish standards for the adoption and placement of Indian children to prevent the breakup of uh, Indian homes. And right. so, right. you know, it's, it's all on them. Right. And so, yeah, like I said, I'm, I'm really glad they upheld it. I was worried they may not, but, you know, they did. And so this is a law that amongst, you know, there's 574 indigenous nations in the United States today that are recognized by the United States government. And I would be willing to bet there is a 100% approval rate of ICWA amongst the leaders of those nations, that every single one of them supports this law. And so that's a pretty rare thing among so many different groups, right? Yeah. And so- And that, and that, know, and, and, and that what you just told me makes me mad because on my, on a personal note, on my very nerdy con law list that I belong to, you know, that we have, we have hundreds and hundreds of con law professors on this lift serve thing. Um, when this case, when, when CERT was granted, a lot of, frankly, conservatives and libertarians took the position there were a lot of Native Americans against this law. They would say those kinds of things, but they didn't really bring the data. <laughs> they didn't really bring the yeah, stuff. There's, there's really none. I mean, I, I guess it's really on who you ask, but like, you know, yeah. I maybe there's individuals out there. Of course, there's individuals right. you'll find on different sides. Well, that's why I say the nations themselves, the leaders, right. there's... Right. 100%, 100% okay. easy. So the other case last week involved sovereign immunity and bankruptcy, and we're going to skip right over that. Um, because right. if I start talking about the, the 11th Amendment, I will start throwing up on, uh, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> so, um, 
But a few years ago, a huge case, the McGirt case, you're sitting in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and um, that case involved kind of uh, the sovereignty of Oklahoma when it comes to Native American tribes. But there was a follow-up to that case. So let's begin at the beginning. You're an excellent lawyer. I can tell that from your resume and from talking to you. How would you sum up the holding of, before we do anything else, what did McGirt hold? So the holding of McGirt was, is that the Muscogee Creek Nation Reservation, um, they, for one, they found that a reservation was created in the mid-1800s whenever right. they moved down here for the Trail of Tears. Right. And then for two, that has never been disestablished explicitly in the interim. And so what that was relevant for is that under uh, federal law with regard to major crimes, um, it's a jurisdictional question. And for one, it strips the state of jurisdiction um, over Indians committing crimes within at least that one Muscogee Nation, um, their territorial bounds under these treaties. Um, but is, the isn't that almost all of Oklahoma? Yeah. And so ever since then, there's been rulings by the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals, very begrudgingly, extending it to each, you know, one of the five tribes, so to speak, that were walked over here by Andrew Jackson. Right. Um, and then a few more smaller ones in far northeast Oklahoma. So essentially what it is on the ground is the state of Oklahoma lacks criminal jurisdiction. They don't have jurisdiction over the subject matter of any Native American over anything to enforce the criminal laws of the state. Wasn't that and undercut so, the next year? In a, in a little bit. And so what it was at first is what I tell people is what McGirt did was essentially set the clock back to 1890 in terms of criminal jurisdiction okay. um, whenever they created the Oklahoma Territory and the Indian Territory. And so we're kind of back in 1890 and what, you know, back in 1890. By the way, so is our Supreme Court. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. And they were treating these large nations like the Cherokee Nation, the Chickasaw Nation, all of them. They were treating them like their own nations, essentially, and that everyone had a clear idea of their sovereignty. And so when you see it being turned back to them, um, you know, what the these treaties said in 1830 that they were found to still be upheld by the last time Congress messed with them in 1850 or 1866 or whatever. Um, what they found was is that the United States of America and the Muscogee Nation and essentially all these other ones, um, they entered into a treaty whereby the United States government, they said in a binding treaty, you will never be subject to the laws of a state or territorial government, period, ever. And that's never been overturned. And so what you see in Oklahoma, is there's a fear of the criminal stuff, whatever. What the what the state officials are really worried about is that we have this state government that's run by a, one particular political party that does not believe in taxation, that does not believe in funding its self-government or state government. Um, you know, we have this one party rule here and um, guess what? This state is broke because of it. And so if you have 30% of the population living right behind me out there, that's, uh, you know, Cherokee, native or whatever, um, you know, conceivably, if the if the direct verbiage of these treaties, as you know, Gorsuch likes to say, um, if it's read as it is written, they don't have civil jurisdiction either. Um, that hasn't been held yet. That, regulatory. But that's not been held yet, right? Not yet. Yeah. But that's what the state government is very fearful of. Right. Um, because, again, then you're losing a large tax base in an already poor state. Um, but as you mentioned, you want to talk about Castro Huerta. What happened on that is that the previous attorney general here was so like he wanted to overturn McGirt so badly. Um, and so they brought up all these challenge cases. Well, Castro Huerta is not Indian. He's uh, he's not Indian, but the victim was. And so what the court held there, again, I disagree with it. 
um, is that where the victim is um, an Indian, but the defendant is a non-Indian, that the state has concurrent jurisdiction with the tribal governments and the United States government. So there was no real basis for that. I mean, all of this stuff happened before Oklahoma ever became a state. Right. So, you know, it doesn't make sense to me on those grounds. But again, that case didn't overturn anything. You know, I mean, it was just a very limited, um, a very limited deal. Um, But, you know, I think that this and I'll say it again, I think that this McGirt case is probably the biggest win for Native Americans in the history of the United States Supreme Court easily. Um, because of just the implications it has, at least here, I mean, not even locally, you see other, I see other tribes trying to, you know, cite that disestablishment uh, principle that they set in McGurk. You know, I see it in Minnesota, um, you know, there's a, an Ojibwe nation using it now that they're probably going to succeed. Um, and then again, you see it all here in Oklahoma and you have these large nations. Right. And so again, self-government, self-determination is the way to help Native Americans. It always has been. Um, and so what you're seeing here with McGirt is the possibility of, you know, restoring that in a way. And the Iniqua too, the Iniqua case too. Um, so let's talk Absolutely. about, let's talk about Gorsuch for a second because, um, so, um, when I reviewed his book and I, I reviewed his, his autobiography kind of in a quasi humorous way, because the reality is, I, I think we, I, when I, sometimes on the radio, I'm asked a question and I say, I don't have a soundbite answer and we can mm-hmm. hold two thoughts in our head at the same time. So let's try to do both of those things. On the one hand, there's no question, right? That he is the biggest ally of native Americans of any Supreme court justice, maybe any American politician. Um, in, in a very, very long time, if not history. And I give him credit for that. Is that a fair description? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, again, it whatever his his personal approach, his personal right. view towards the law, and yes. I mean, it just happens to favor very greatly because, again, when they executed all of these treaties, they didn't need to lie. You know, they just would... They didn't need to lie in terms of words. They were just straight up with it. Oh yeah, well, let's just tell them we're going to give them this. We're never going to do it. Okay, you know, <laughs> like. So, but what? If, so, I, so, but I have a question for you as a lawyer now. Take off, take off your your, and none of us can do this, obviously. But take off kind of your Native American advocacy hat for a second. Um, and I think you know, from what I, the little I know, I think Gorsuch got the law right in in, in McGurk for sure. Um, but you know, the man was born in the Beltway. His mother ran the EPA. He went to the same private school as uh, Brett Kavanaugh uh, in, in Bethesda, Maryland, or somewhere in D.C. suburbs. Um, and then he moves to Colorado, and he decides he's a Westerner, and that's how he portrays himself. Um, and I'm going to suggest that his preferences here on the law are were all complicated. And my guess is part of it is he wants to flag his Western persona a little bit. And from your perspective, I would think, who cares? He's, he's doing the great work for us and we're very happy to have him. But it does tell us something about the Supreme Court, because I think, because I think Justice Roberts hates voting rights. Justice Kennedy loved, you know, LGBTQ rights, or at least gay rights. Justice Ginsburg, gender rights. Justice Marshall, the rights of, you know, uh, people of color. Um, and Justice Gorsuch favors Native American rights. And all of that happened I think, due to upbringings, experience, and values, not law. What do we make of that? I, like I said, you think you hit it. I mean, I, it doesn't matter to me. Right. Um, you know, you've got this guy that's doing something, 
you know, frankly, that's quite special that no one I, I would give him credit. No one in his position heretofore has done what he's done. Right. Um, and so, you know, it's nice to have somebody like that. And you can see how easily it can turn, because, again, I would have expected maybe uh, Barrett to be a little more similar to him. But again, she was the side that switched on Castro Huerta. So, I mean, look, um, it it could easily go the other way, I suppose. And I do think that all of this stuff is really dependent on someone's personal background, for sure. I mean, yes. <laughs> uh, you know, whatever they want. Yes. And so, you know, this sure. guy just happens to have this this view of, right. you know, what he calls textualism and that the but, way well, he applies I don't think, it. I don't think, okay, just to be clear, I think his views on Native Americans have nothing to do with textualism. They have to do with his views on Native Americans. But I'm not going to complain because I think we got, God knows <laughs> we need somebody like this, you know. Well, I think it does in a sense, because when you look at these treaties and stuff, you look at the plain language, and this is what the guy does. You take the treaty and you just parse down the words. You take a law and you just look at straight at the words. They didn't have to lie back then because, like, as I keep saying, they're like, oh, yeah, let's tell them we're going to give a million bucks a year and we'll never give it to them. Who cares? Right. You know, that's that's what happened. And so that's why all of this is happening, I think, because you right. have this guy that's you know saying, well, there's no extra tech, you know, extraneous sources. We don't need it. And so, you know, I think it's a real connection or I guess a real intersection of what these people did historically, which was just, you know, they would say what they thought they wanted to hear and put it in writing in a law. Right. And they never thought that they would be called on it. And so I would just tell you that Gorsuch's textualism runs out when his policy preferences, um, for example, oh, sure, sure, for sure. example, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms should not be abridged, and Justice Gorsuch agrees with other conservatives that we just erase half of that amendment. So, um, again, I, we'll, we'll disagree disagree on this, but but I, we, we can, what we can agree on is I'm glad he is a su strong supporter of Native American yeah. rights for whatever reasons. Um, and hopefully he'll, you know, teach, you know, that'll be a something others will take from him. I don't know. I mean, yeah. you know, I don't know how influential he's going to be. I think time will tell on that. Um, yeah, but I, but I hope very, and I do think we should give him credit for it. So I do, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that yep. we shouldn't. Um, all right. I want to wrap up with what I think might be the hardest, one of the hardest questions we're going to discuss. We've discussed today. It's not a legal question. Um, and I really haven't given it much thought and I'm sure you have. Uh, so I grew up in, a, in Long Island. I grew up in a, a fairly affluent, fairly affluent, community with a very good public school, uh, public school system. I don't know if it's good today, but it was good 30, 40, 50 years ago. And we learned nothing that was true and authentic about what, about the plight of Native Americans over time in this country. Really just, I'm going to say it, I hope my law school doesn't kill me, for absolute bullshit about the history of that. Yeah, right. And I went to a good, right. a very liberal, progressive, good public school, you know, so, um, and I'm guessing it's only gotten much worse since then. So, especially in Florida, Texas, and other places. So, what should we be teaching kids? In how do we resurrect? How do we get a, this a new generation of people to really understand the grave injustices that have been done? To sure, them? and I think what this all boils down to, and it's not just Texas and whatever yeah. uh, the conservative states is, is that everybody, again, as I mentioned at the beginning, Native American, everything has to do with land. Well, guess what? Your country. Your great country that you know you believe in all these institutions or whatever of it. Guess what that has to do with land, right? So your country's not so great without the resources and land, right? And so you have all these myths and stereotypes because 
what matters most in this country, I truly believe there's like a worship of civic institutions in this country. Like, oh, wow, our our court system is just so special. Our system of government is just so We call special. that American exceptionalism. It's awful. Right. Yeah. And so that's really people are um, indoctrinated with that. And that's the thing. You know, they make they want to have people serve the country like that. And so in this part of Native Americans is not a race based thing, but this and it's like if you can't get past this nationalism and people's idea of nationalism, you know, you'll start to see that. And that's why we've been whitewashed out of history. That's why they're not nations. That's why the treaties don't matter. It's just like they're just this race that doesn't exist anymore. Um, yeah, maybe some bad things happened to them. Probably the Spanish did it. Um, you know, not us. Right. And so, yeah. Um, but when you what it needs to be taught is it needs to be taught alongside U.S. history all the way through all the way through. And so because it's so inseparable, it's more inseparable, in my opinion, than slavery or any of that stuff. Because again, where does it come from? Land. You have to have a country, you have to have land. I mean, to have a big country, a great country, you have to have land. And so, you know, they didn't just get land sessions from, you know, who cares that they got a land session from France, right, in 1802? That's not, that's just a land claim they bought right. for the so-called Louisiana Purchase. You know, what really mattered was in engaging with each of these individual nations, right, in all of these treaties to get them to give up to seed actual land. So then you could get the white settlers on it. And so, I mean, I think all of this is part and parcel, especially when it starts coming up with the Civil War stuff. Again, you know, obviously the Civil War about slavery, but, you know, the way that both sides, the Union and the future Confederates, are trying to solve that issue is by expanding out into native, you know, sure. territory. Sure. So yep. it, it's really indistinguishable. And so it needs to be, in my view, um, a central component of American history in the sense of where did all this land come from? Where did all this power come from? You know, it wasn't from these like nonsensical ideals or whatever, you know, like, well, we've got these great, fantastic ideals about liberty and all of that. It doesn't come from that. You know, it comes from forcibly taking all of this territory and resources. And so there's a clear winner and there's a clear loser. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so, you know, they just whitewash out the clear loser. Right. And so they want to make everybody that's part of this assimilation deal that you mentioned earlier, yeah. that it might work for other groups. But it doesn't for Native Americans because, again, if you just assimilate a Native mind into the whole, then they don't know any of this. And they're just back to hearing the stereotype as is, right? Do you have any so optimism of, that this is going to improve? Probably not on this regard. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, maybe. I mean, I, but again, people's sense of nationalism and like their worship. I mean, it is a literal worship of like institutions in this country is right. so high and it's so central to like the prestige of this country, so to speak, like, you know, that we have to have just the best courts or like, well, wow, we're just so unique because we came up with democracy, notwithstanding the fact that the word comes from, you know, Greece, right. um, you know, <laughs> yeah. like, and all of that stuff. So, so, and so yeah. it, 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 it's really difficult for me to envision where it's truly put up there. I mean, but again, I, I do like where we're headed now, right? Like where there's this re revisiting, I suppose, when you see it, especially with black people and, and black history, a revisiting of the place of black history is very similar to Native American history. They're, they're both based upon the same thing, I think, you know, again, it's this bad critical race theory, so they'll say, but like a, a, a hiring, but putting Native stuff with that, right? And so you're, re you're reevaluating the past through this new lens. Um, and it may be critical race theory, but I mean, again, critical race theory somewhat explains, you know, the nation's part and the whitewashing, but 
especially as to the land, like why it all happened. And so, so, you know, I, I like where it's headed with that. I just, there's this idea and this isn't a bash on like, you know, multiculturalism, but like, there's this idea that like, you know, the Lincoln, Lincoln-esque multiculturalism of like the civil war is like just the best. Right. And it's like, okay, but it doesn't work for one group. And that's the native Americans, because I mean, there's a unique way that native people were treated relative to everybody else. And so, I mean, I think that you have to recognize that there's a race-based concept to this, you know, of white supremacy, but then also as applied to native Americans, there's this nationalistic or patriotic idea of like the nation state, because again, when the United States was founded, their whole goal was to create empire, right? And so they didn't ramrod over anybody for empire except for Native Americans. Right. 100%. You know, and then they had, the, they had their slaves build it too. But again, the, the way they did it for each is different. And so yeah, that's, that's fascinating. It's fascinating stuff. Um, I want to end yeah. with this on a slightly lighter note, but maybe not actually. Um, and I'm ever, this affects me like for nine months of the year and I can't, it's so surreal. I can't really understand. So I live in Atlanta, Georgia. I've been here 31 years, 33 years um, with the college here. And I don't understand how in 2023 America, one of the most important and most valuable sports franchises in the world. And if you take out, you know, soccer or European football, one of the most important franchises, you know, by far. How do we get away with the Atlanta Braves, the Tomahawk Chop, all of that stuff? How is that still happening in this city, which is a very, not the state, but the city is a very multicultural, blue, progressive yes. place? Oh, yeah, it's still good. Yeah. Um, again, Does it bother you? you know, it bother me? It bothers me. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the Tomahawk Chop more than anything. Yeah. You know, that, that's a clear mockery. I hate that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, how it gets away with is that this, this, um, as I would say, this kind of introspection of, you know, what might constitute being racist or not right. is fairly new, you know, like to the, to, not to Native Americans or Black people, but to the public at large. Yes, right? fair enough. And so I think that this is only maybe a really, to be honest with you, maybe a 10-year-old thing at the most. Right. And so um, that's how. And so, you know, you'll have these guys hold on. I think ultimately it will change. Um, God, I hope but, so. Because I, I can't, I don't watch, I, I actually refuse to root for them and watch them because I, I'm so offended by it. I can't stand it. I mean, it's just nuts. Yeah, it's annoying. I can't stand it either. So, I mean, again, hopefully they get them the same way they got the uh, Redskins, right? Yes. Going to yes. the sponsors and stuff. And the Cleveland Indians, right. Um, right. I And I don't want to, I, I wanted to end on that, but I want to make the audience understand. What I, I raised that just kind of as a personal footnote to what is, has been a really helpful podcast for me to understand more about Native American culture, Native American law, Native American history. And I'm really glad you came on, um, especially Thank you. your, yeah. your background is so on. interesting. And uh, I hope you keep fighting the good fight because we need you. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Brett. Really appreciate it.